When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. We are posting this a little late this week, unfortunately, because I am recording this in the middle of an actual hurricane. So if it sounds like I'm in a boat that's about ready to capsize, that's why. (laughs) Anyway, my name is Jessica Kale, and if you're new to the show, you might not be aware that aside from being a historian, I have also written several historical romance novels. In fact, a huge part of the Dirty Sexy History community is actually made up of romance authors and readers, and every so often I come across a subject that I know they're going to love. This week is one of those topics. Illegitimacy is something that comes up a lot in historical romance, my own books very much included, so I'm sure a lot of you will be familiar with some of the ground that we cover today. Nevertheless, there is a lot to unpack when it comes to illegitimate birth in the 18th century, so we had to call an expert. That expert is Dr. Kate Gibson. Her new book is Illegitimacy, Family, and Stigma in England, 1660 to 1834, and it just came out last week. Today, we're talking about what it meant to be born illegitimate in the 18th century, how that experience varied for mixed-race children, and why society felt it was its duty to exclude them, not as a punishment for their birth, but as a deterrent for adultery. Did it work? (laughs) No, but we'll get into that in a minute. As we know, people like sex, and they always have. Later in this conversation, we also get into the reality of premarital and extramarital sex in the 18th century, and spoiler alert, everybody was doing it. Romance friends, this episode is for you, and I hope you love it. Here's my interview with Dr. Kate Gibson. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Kate Gibson, author of the new book, Illegitimacy, Family, and Stigma in England, 1660 to 1834. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's very nice to be here. (laughs) So we have a lot of authors and uh, some major readers in the audience, and illegitimacy is something that comes up a lot in fiction, often in characters who are seen as black sheep because of their birth. So what did illegitimacy mean in 18th century England? So illegitimacy is a legal category that has been attached to children across cultures and societies. You know, as long as we've had the institution of marriage, there's been the institution of illegitimacy. And so in England, it goes back to Roman law, medieval law. And in the 18th century, an illegitimate child was someone born to parents who were not married to each other. So that means that one of the parents could be married to somebody else. So it could be adulterous but it just means their parents aren't married to each other. And in the 18th century, that came with a range of legal penalties, 
So, for example, an illegitimate child couldn't inherit their parents' estate, so any property their parents had, um, an illegitimate child couldn't inherit it. They had no right to their father's surname and anything else that kind of passed down the father's line, they didn't have any right to at all. So legally, the legal term that all these kind of uh, big 18th century lawyers use is that they have no legal father. And that's a really big problem in 18th century England because everything, your status, your name, your wealth, everything comes from your father. It's a very stratified society. So you can imagine that that would cut you off from quite a lot of social ties and the way that people judged your social position is compromised, basically, if you're illegitimate. Oh, it must have been very difficult. So how were illegitimate children treated differently from those who were born within marriage? Something that I found in my research is that there's no kind of one size fits all for illegitimacy. It's incredibly varied. Humans have all sorts of crazy messed up relationships. And so any situation where a couple is having sex, a child could be born. And so it's really, really varied. And it depends a lot on the on the parents relationship with each other. But generally, they wouldn't be brought up with their parents. They might have a difficult relationship with one or both of their parents. They were more likely to grow up poor and to be excluded from their family and their community. Right. And it sounds like issues of race could further complicate things. So what was the experience like for mixed race children? Yeah, so a lot of mixed race children in this period were also illegitimate. Um, So if you think 18th century British Empire, you've got a lot of men going to the West Indies, so the Caribbean, um, and also what they called the East Indies at the time, which is India, um, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. And those are unmarried men going to the colonies and having relationships um, with local women, so women of colour. So in India, for example, those women would be Hindu or Muslim. Quite often they wouldn't marry them um, because they were of a different religion. And in the West Indies, unfortunately, a lot of relationships, and we can't really call them relationships because issues of consent are really complicated, um, but they're having sex with enslaved women who can't consent and so children are born from these relationships and so a mixed race person has the kind of double whammy of the stigma of illegitimacy and of their race so it's kind of like a double prejudice effectively so they have all the same legal disabilities that a white illegitimate child would have but they probably experienced a lot more sometimes overt, sometimes subtle racism um, about their skin colour. There were lots of assumptions that a mixed race girl, for example, would be more likely to be um, promiscuous because that was the view of women of colour in that period. So yeah, they had a really raw deal. Oh, it must have been so difficult. And uh, were a lot of them brought back to England as well? Yeah, so that varied quite a lot, again, depending on the relationship between the father and the mother. So one thing that I found in my research is that it really, really matters whether the father believed he was the father. So paternity is a really big deal. The reason why there's this distinction between a legitimate child born in marriage and an illegitimate child is that because supposedly a child born in marriage has secure paternity. Now, obviously, that's not foolproof. (laughs) Um, But that was the hope anyway. And so it's this fear that an illegitimate child, you don't know who their father is. And that's really disruptive and chaotic in a society that, that is patriarchal. That's a problem. And so 
if if a father was sure about his paternity, he would bring his children over to the UK, usually put them into foster care or put them into care with one of his family members, and they would be raised by their white family. And the purpose of that was to kind of socialise them in white British Protestant culture so that they would in future be able to pass as white effectively. And it's, I don't know, I've read a lot of letters about these children from their families. And sometimes you can see there's a lot of love and care and they genuinely want what's best for that child. But unfortunately at that period, what they thought was best was to distance them completely from their maternal family um, and to kind of cut off that part of their heritage. And so you get some very, a lot of mixed race children were not necessarily confused about their identity, but had problems in the way that they thought about themselves and problems with their self-esteem because they had been completely cut off from half of their heritage. Of course, that must have been absolutely devastating. I can't even imagine. And how did that affect them as adults? So I did this massive, massive study where I compared some illegitimate children as they grew up with um, their peers. And I measured things like, um, did they go into the same occupations? Did they marry at the same age? Or were they, did they have delay in getting married? And also did they marry down the social scale or did they marry kind of similar to their father's social status? So I was trying to work out how much illegitimacy had like a material impact on their lives. And I found that illegitimate children and, and mixed race children specifically as well, tended to marry at an older age, suggesting that there was some social prejudice about them. The boys tended to go down the social scale slightly. So say they went into the army, for example, they wouldn't get promoted at the same rate as their legitimate peers. And so it did, it, it did affect their life chances negatively, but it wasn't as bad as... I thought it would be when I first went in. It's like a measurable impact, but it's not ridiculous. It's almost like they just slide slightly down the social scale when you measure stuff like occupation and marriage. But I measured the rate at which they got promoted and measured that against their legitimate peers. And they get promoted sort of, there's like a five-year time lag. So they're older when they're getting promoted. And that would suggest that either there's some kind of social prejudice against them, or it might reflect the fact that they don't have that kind of family network that other kids have, mm. that the legitimate kids have. And so they don't have access to the patronage. They don't know the right people. And so there's something that's disadvantaging them. And mm. it's it's their illegitimacy, but it, there's several reasons why that could be. You mentioned, of course, that in a lot of these cases, if the family was open to it, they would, you know, send the illegitimate children off to be fostered by other relatives. And it sounds like the sort of 18th century family was structured a, a little differently than it is today. It isn't necessarily your, your kind of nuclear family. You also have your aunts and other people involved as well. So how was the family structured and, and did this allow for the inclusion of more illegitimate children? Yeah, so historians disagree about this. And early on, there was this kind of image, you know, kind of in the 70s and the 80s, when historians were first looking at the history of the family, there was this image that it was a nuclear family, husband and wife, 2.4 children, you know, that kind of thing. But the more research we do about it, the more we find out that actually households were really flexible and you could move in and out of them. And they kind of accepted 
you know, kin, um, especially children, because children are the family members that are most in need. And so there were these really strong obligations between families that a child you were related to, if they needed you, you had to step in, you had to do something. And usually that's taking them into your household. But it could be lots of other things, you know, getting them a place at school or getting them an apprenticeship or a job. But care, foster care is definitely one of those. And quite often it's grandparents. So, so you know, as I was saying with paternity before, a lot of illegitimate children didn't have very good relationships with their fathers because their fathers didn't believe they were their fathers. Um, they disputed the paternity. And so quite often you end up with this situation where there's a, a single woman and a baby. And it's very hard to earn a living by yourself as a single woman. I mean, now with a baby, never mind then. And so these women would have to move into households with other people and pool their resources. Quite often, mothers would move in with their own parents. So you get this three-generation grandparental household, um, or quite often they move in with their own siblings, so aunts and uncles helping to care for the child. And this is a really functional... I found lots of examples where it functioned really well. So the mother would go out to work because she's young, she's got loads of energy, she can get a job. And the grandparents who are a bit older would look after the baby. And so they're kind of sharing their resources. They're making sure the child is cared for, but they're making sure that the household can run properly, that they all have an income. So it does it does work. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. And of course, uh, some children who were not so lucky might have ended up at the Foundling Hospital. So what yeah. can you tell us about this place? Yeah, so the family hospital is amazing. And if if any of your listeners want to Google it, there's so much information about it. It's amazing. Um, so the founding hospital was set up in the 1750s by this philanthropist called Thomas Coram. Um, and he was worried that lots of children were being abandoned on the streets of London and dying, basically. And he thought this was a humanitarian outrage. You know, this is the middle of the Enlightenment. Everybody's, you know, thinking about how they can improve humankind. And he thinks that, you know, this waste of human life and human potential is a really, you know, big problem. And so he sets up this charity called the Foundling Hospital. And basically they take children in, babies in, with very few questions asked, at the beginning, their policy changes throughout the 19th century, but at the beginning, they'll take any baby. They give that baby an entirely new name. They have a system where, so basically the philanthropists wanted to separate the child and the mother so that the mother could, in their eyes, be rehabilitated and go off as, as if she'd never had a child and be able to earn her own living um, and get married and have more children, you know, start her life again. And they thought it was in the best interest of both mother and child to completely separate them. So they cut off all trace that the mother could have had to find her child again, pretty much. Um, in theory, they could be reclaimed, but it was very, very hard to do. And those children would then be sent out to wet nurses, so women who could breastfeed them in the countryside. They would grow up with those nurses until they were five, and then they would come back to the family hospital. You know, so imagine, you know, in films and things, a big orphanage. It's a massive institution. Um, and it attracted loads and loads of money. William Hogarth is a very famous artist in the 18th century, and he was a big patron of the family hospital. 
and it got loads of aristocratic patrons, loads of money. Handel was a patron, you know, so it's like a big, a big London institution. And then these children would be raised there and then they would be apprenticed and a lot of them went to sea. So the idea is that they would be raised and to be good citizens and then they would be unleashed into the world um, to earn their own living. And undoubtedly it saved a lot of children's lives, but it's, I mean, as we all know now, institutional care is not always great for children. Um, And it must have been, uh, these children were often known to be foundlings and that will have had um, a stigma attached to it. Um, as they went through their lives you know and they'll have had loads of questions about their identity and who their parents were and very little way of of knowing they they had no way of finding out who their parents were so it's it's a complicated complicated institution but it's amazing and all the records are still there which is great it must have been uh so difficult really for everyone involved uh it's hard to imagine being uh being that cut off especially if you don't necessarily want to give your child up you know, that must have been very difficult. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I try not to not to use the word abandoned as much as I can. And I try to say separated because a lot of parents had very little choices or what choices they had were incredibly limited. And for many women, either either if they gave their child to you know a foster carer or a member of their family to raise and they didn't have much contact with them afterwards or if they gave them to the family hospital the vast majority of evidence that we have from women themselves in their own words is that they think they are doing the best thing for that child and you know a single parent household cannot earn enough money to care for a child especially one that can't work yet, you know, as a small child. And so really they had, it's a choice between separation from your child or starvation for both of you. And therefore separation was just seen as as in their best interest. And we have some amazing letters um, from working women, you know, saying, I love my child very much. And this is how I met his father, his or her father. And, you know, Perhaps they had a one night stand or perhaps they loved each other and wanted to get married, but he died or he lost his job or something happened. And they kind of give this backstory and then they say, but please look after my child. You know, I love my child. Please take them. And so clearly they had obviously they had very strong emotions, but they didn't in in the circumstances of 18th century Britain. They had very few choices. Absolutely. So how much of the stigma against illegitimate birth was driven by economic anxiety? Did a lot of it just come down to money? So a lot of it does come down to money. Yes. So basically, 18th century England had effectively a welfare state. So every citizen had the right, if they um, fell into poverty, to what was called relief. So that could be Uh, you know, a couple of shillings a week to keep you and your household going. It could be medical care in the workhouse. It could be paying a wet nurse to look after an orphan child. That child has a right to that care paid for by the parish. So effectively the state. And the way it worked was illegitimate children claimed their money from the parish in which they were born. And 
So there was all this anxiety about too many children being born in one parish because then it would cost loads of money. And you have stories of parish officers trying really hard to get women to marry at like the eighth month of their pregnancy so that the child's not their problem. Yeah. Or trying to, you know, bribing grooms to get married quickly or trying to encourage women to go across the parish boundary to give birth so that they're in another parish. So it's the other parish's responsibility. So there's all this kind of anxiety about whose responsibility this illegitimate child is, because a legitimate child is ultimately their father's responsibility. But an illegitimate child has no father. So they're the state's responsibility. And over the 18th century, you get quite a big increase in the number of illegitimate children. And so the government starts going, hang on, we can't pay for all these children. This is a massive liability. Um, The cost of poor relief is going up. You know, anybody familiar with 18th century England knows that, you know, there's a lot of wars, a lot of bad stuff is going down and the poor rate is increasing and they just don't want illegitimate children. And so I do think a lot of the stigma was this perception that an unmarried mother was irresponsible and that her child is a burden economically on the nation. And it's interesting if you read sort of rhetoric by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, it's very similar. It's like irresponsible mothers. Yeah, all the Mm -hmm. same rhetoric keeps coming up and again. And yeah, that is a that is a big part of it in the 18th century. I mean, you do get people saying, well, they're small children. Obviously, they need charity, but equal numbers saying not our problem. Why should we pay for them? So, yes, economics is a big thing. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, charity, actually. So although Jonas Hanway was in favor of charity for illegitimate children, he also argued that ostracizing them was necessary to keep people faithful to their marriages. Did it work? Uh, no. No. <laughs> it really didn't work. No, 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 no. So yeah, so this is like the philosophical intellectual underpinning to the concept of illegitimacy is that you must be mean to the children in order to deter people from having extramarital sex. And it really didn't work. No, I mean, everybody was having sex outside yeah. of marriage. Yeah, and it's crazy. And, and it's not the kid's fault. Like, why not ostracize the father? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it's something that goes back to the Bible. I mean, it's, it's in the Bible, right? And so it's... It's a really deep-seated cultural assumption that that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, it, it it failed miserably. I mean, something like, I'll forget the statistic now, but it's either one third or two thirds of brides were pregnant when they got married. Because that we have the birth records, we can check the dates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember which one it is, but it's a lot anyway. And so clearly all these people were having premarital sex, courtship sex, and the parents of illegitimate children were just unluckier than their married counterparts. They just got their dates wrong or, you know, one of them promised they'd get married and then reneged on their promise or someone lost their job or someone died. You know, something got in the way to stop them marrying. And then they accidentally have an illegitimate child. And I think a lot of the kind of moralizing rhetoric that that you got in the 18th century and now to some extent kind of forget human nature and Mm. accidental births people often don't mean to have an illegitimate child so the idea that there could be this deterrent is just 
nonsense it's not realistic complete nonsense yeah yeah that is such a great statistic you said um now just to repeat that for people who might have missed it up to a third of women were pregnant before they married so this does as you say it does suggest that premarital sex was pretty common uh now one particularly stubborn misconception about this period in particular is that women never had sex before marriage it's ridiculous yeah complete ridiculous yeah 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 and (laughs) and we've been that way throughout time you know Mm. people get horny they have sex like a lot of people are not married when they have sex and I think in the in the early modern period you know so from like the 15th century onwards especially marriage was really fluid the timing of it was really fluid um you made a series of promises to each other and that will have ended in a like a, a proper wedding ceremony in a church but the actual timing of it, you know, it could be a couple of weeks or a couple of months in which you thought you were committed to a person. And in that time, most people had sex. So it was seen as like a normal part of courtship, um, as a totally acceptable part of courtship. And one of the things that I explore in the book is whether or not there's a gap between the kind of ideal, the very moralizing, nobody should be having illegitimate children, this is really terrible, and then at a kind of national cultural level, but then on a kind of interpersonal community level, people going pragmatically, okay, well, that's happened. We can deal with it. Don't worry. Like we have systems in, in you know, to help you deal with this, you know, move in with the grandparents, send the child to foster parents, ask for relief from the parish. You know, there's, I found that at an actual individual level, people were a lot more understanding and did try to help. And and I think that they probably thought it was making the best of a bad situation, but they certainly didn't completely ostracize children. It wasn't seen to be good to be illegitimate, but people got on with it. And so I think there was this acceptance that yes, people are having sex outside marriage, fine. Like accidents happen, you know realistically people knew it was happening it wasn't a big deal yeah and I think there was a big difference between pragmatism at kind of individual level but within a kind of bigger culture that said well this isn't ideal you really shouldn't be doing it but because you have we'll deal with it yeah 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 it's not the end of the world all right now um you also mentioned that uh, well from 1660 there was a major increase in illegitimate births until about more than 25% of first births were illegitimate by 1800 so yeah. what changed yeah well oh so historians have been debating this for <laughs> decades what changed so there's a couple of different reasons that we think why this massive increase happened so one of them is kind of touches on what I've said before about economic dislocation. And, um, you know, you have things like the Napoleonic Wars by the end of the 18th century. You get lots of um, economic crises. So you get the beginnings of industrialization. Um, and you have a lot of people moving around the country, a lot of people losing their jobs, trying to find a new job, running off to war, coming back. And so it's quite chaotic. And so we think perhaps that people intended to get married, had sex as a normal part of, we're getting married, let's have sex, thinking that they would get married in time before the baby was born, but then something happened to stop them getting married. So their husband-to-be ran off to the army or got conscripted 
pressed into the army or he lost his job and he had to move and they might have said oh you move get a job I'll come and find you later but then the baby's born in the meantime and so then you have an illegitimate child um so that kind of economic dislocation might be one thing another thing which I don't know historians are still undecided about is that there was some kind of sexual revolution so like like the 1960s um you know that over the 18th century there was this much more accepting culture of pleasure and individualism and um, people's right to sexual happiness and so that people were just suddenly having lots of affairs and I I don't know I am skeptical about that because a lot of the evidence that we have of of that is from upper class white men Mm -hmm. writing in their diaries saying oh I visited this number of prostitutes last night so James Boswell is a really famous one. So he's a famous 18th century diarist, a bit like the peeps of the 18th century. But he has a lot of sex with a lot of prostitutes in his diary. And I don't I just don't think it's realistic for how the rest of the population live their lives. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have enough evidence for that. So I'm more inclined with the economic dislocation argument. Right. But something's happening. It's a massive change. Unless the uptick is just down to half a dozen upper class white men. Yeah. <laughs> It's just all that. I, I didn't buy that. So yeah. <laughs> it's like all James Boswell. Thanks, man. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So uh what about married women who had children resulting from affairs? How were those children treated differently? Yeah, so they're in really interesting group. They're really hard to find. One famous example is the Duchess of Devonshire. So if anybody has seen the film The Duchess with Kira Knightley in it. Um, so she had an unhappy marriage and she married very young um, and she had an affair with this aristocrat, you know, young and lovely aristocrat um, who would end up being Earl Grey in the Prime Minister. And um, and they have children, illegitimate children. And I, I found it very hard to find examples or at least evidence um, of what these women felt about their children. Basically, an upper class father could have as much contact with his child as he wanted he's in control he has you know he's in control of his own money he can arrange for someone to care for the child he can pay for that he can give that child a bit of an inheritance he can get them a job whereas an upper class woman if she's married to somebody else she has no control over her money she has no money of her own she doesn't own anything and so it's much much harder for her to have any control over what happens to her child so usually she has to rely on the father of the child to do that for her and in the Duchess of Devonshire's case um the father of her children did do that her children were fostered out um and given sort of very kind of genteel but but quiet educations they were raised in the countryside away from anybody that knew their parents um but well-maintained, given a good education, given a marriage portion, married off. But they will have had almost no contact whatsoever with their mothers. Now, some of that is because they've got no property of their own. They can't they can't do anything financially for them. But also a married woman, an aristocratic married woman, a lot of her value socially is dependent on her providing legitimate heirs for her husband. So this is the future Duke of Devonshire, for example. And with the Duchess of Devonshire, if you, if if she is thought to um, be promiscuous, 
then there's all this doubt and suspicion about the paternity of her other children. And so a woman of her standing by openly acknowledging her illegitimate children risks the status of her other children. And there were lots of rumours later on about the Duke of Devonshire not being legitimate, not being his father's child. And that, I mean, it came to nothing in the end, but there were rumours. And that could have jeopardised his title, his inheritance, the whole estate he could have lost. And and so those are really high stakes for women. And ultimately, an aristocratic woman, she is totally dependent on her husband you know, he could have divorced her, which was an option for aristocrats, wasn't for for poorer people, middle class people, really. And so she risks a lot more um, than either a man in her position or a lower class woman. A lower class woman kind of has more resources at her disposal. But an aristocratic woman is it's terrible. And we have some letters, you know, of these women saying, you know, I I want to hear news of my child, but I can never see them. And they have to give them up when they're really small. It's really sad and really affected them, I think. That's awful. So in a lot of ways, um, there's more freedom to being a lower class woman. Yes, I think I think it's more acceptable to have sex before marriage if you're a lower class woman, mm-hmm. because there's less riding on the paternity of your children. I mean, bluntly, like they're not inheriting titles and in you know massive estates, so there's less risk. Um, but also, a lower class woman, especially a, a kind of working class woman, she can earn a living to a certain extent, and she can also apply to the parish for help. So the parish will provide her with with money if she's too poor they will help her whereas for like a middle class woman or an upper class woman it's they would have seen it as very degrading to either work for a living or ask the parish for money and to ask the parish for money you have to do it in public and that's that's very embarrassing it's humiliating they're not going to do that they're not going to do that no there's no way they're going to do that and so they they tend to choose gentility you know appearing like a gentlewoman above fighting for a right to see their child and you kind of can't blame them gosh it's so sad so you have a lot of really great case studies in this book there are so many of them but were there any that particularly stood out to you yes so this there's a a wild (laughs) I mean some of this I mean Bridgerton that kind of thing like it's not as strange as the real life cases that I look at honestly (laughs) Um, it's like a novel all the time so there's one case so it's an aristocratic case and it was one of the first ones I found. And I just kind of, I was sitting in the archive and I couldn't believe the scandal that these people were coming out with in their letters. Um, and so there's this aristocrat called the Earl of Pembroke. And he ran off with a gentry woman and they had a baby. And so he was married to someone else. This is him committing adultery. Um, and the baby is born. They run off to Holland to have the baby. Um, and the baby is born and they call him Augustus Reebcomp which is an anagram of Pembroke, right? I mean, it's, oh. the, yeah, it's very transparent. Yeah, it's an anagram of Pembroke. And this little boy, the, so this just shows you the difference between what a man can do and what a woman can do. So the Earl of Pembroke brings Augustus back to his massive country house. And he basically says to his wife, the Countess of Pembroke, please, can you look after this child? And the Countess of Pembroke already has two children of her own. Um, so this, this, they already have a legitimate family. But she, to her credit, takes Augustus into her house. He gets sent to Eton. He 
gets given loads of patronage. His father pulls loads of strings to get him into the Navy under like a really good captain. He gets promoted really fast because his father works for him. His father is like, okay, we're going to get you some patronage. We're going to get you a good post. We're going to get you into be a captain. It's going to be great. Um, he gives him loads of money. So this is a classic case of the Earl of Pembroke knew he was Augustus's father and treated him like a son. Now, not as well as he did his legitimate son, but still pretty good. But the thing that really appealed to me is that you have loads of letters between Augustus um, and his half-brother, George, who's the legitimate going to be Earl of Pembroke in the future. And these letters are so supportive of each other and they are really there for each other through their whole lives. In their 20s, George has... He gets married to the woman he loves, proper love match, but she dies really tragically very young and he's distraught. And Augustus comes home from the Navy and is like, I can't go back on my ship. I have to stay with George. Like he's grieving. I have to stay with him. I'm his brother. And like the level of support and love that they had for each other, even though the kind of stigma of illegitimacy was trying to mess it up is it was it was very compelling to me as a story and it just I think it it really under I mean I, I also have you know quite a few other cases from across the social scale of half siblings having you know really loving great relationships but this one they just go into so much detail and it was it was really a reminder that families were flexible and they took in children and they loved illegitimate children despite you know against all the odds um, they they could have really mutually rewarding relationships. And so that one kind of, yeah, stuck with me because he was a success story, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely beautiful. I think that's terrific. So this book is so fascinating and it must have taken ages to put together. Uh, so what's next for you? Where can we find you? So I've started a new book project. So this one is about fostering and adoption. Um, so it's kind of like, fostering adoption weren't legal they didn't exist legally before the 20th century so so children were kind of moved around very informally and we don't have very many kind of official records about it and so I'm trying to find those children who were fostered and adopted um in informal ways using things like diaries and correspondence and and kind of those kind of sources rather than the official records that we'd have in the 20th century to do with adoption. So I'm trying to find out why children were adopted, what happened to them, kind of its impact on their relationship with their families and on their identity, things like that. Wow. So adoption didn't really exist as it does now, but did it ever happen? Oh, it definitely happened. Yeah, yeah. But um, it didn't exist legally. Mm -hmm. So now if you adopt a child, the biological parent of that child um, gives up their parental rights and the adopted parent takes the parental rights. So they become legally responsible for that child. But before that law was only in place in 1926 in England and Wales and in 1930 in Scotland. So really quite late. So before that point, children were taken care of by people who were not their biological parents, but parental rights were not alienable. You kept your parental rights forever. And so at any point, a biological parent could reclaim a child. So 
and it's also not regulated it's not supervised um whereas now and in the 20th century um you know the government was involved in placing children and making sure that children's welfare was maintained um by their adopted parents and you, you know there was an application process and it was centralized whereas in the 18th century it is completely informal um parents would just find somebody to look after a child um, if they couldn't for whatever reason. And it has some similar themes with my book on illegitimacy in that quite often it's grandparents and aunts and uncles taking care of children. And, and also one of the big questions in the illegitimacy book was about who decides who belongs to a family and how does that affect a child's identity? And those kind of themes I'm exploring now as well as, as to who decides where a child lives and what impact does that have on that child as they grow up? That's really interesting. Well, we can't wait to read it. <laughs> no, this book, it was uh, it was so good. So um, again, for everybody, uh, this book is Illegitimacy, Family and Stigma in England, 1660 to 1834. And it's out on November 4th from Oxford University Press. Kate, thank you so much for stopping by the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for reading it. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kate Gibson for stopping by. Her book is Illegitimacy, Family, and Stigma in England, 1660 to 1834, and you can find her on Twitter at DrKateGibson22. Thank you, as always, to my very favorite people, our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Rose Little, Mary McComb, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, Sylvia Van Eyck, Jay Val, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can also rate, review, and subscribe, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. If you want more great stories while you're waiting for the next episode, we also have six years of post archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.